everyone. Welcome to the Bharat Law Podcast. This is your host, Sara Kazmi. In today's episode, I'm being joined by Sara Malik, who is an energy lawyer from Pakistan, currently working for IHS Market in Houston, Texas. She has an LLM in energy law and policy from University of Dundee and a master's in public administration from Columbia University. Sara and I are also partners at our firm, Energy Resource Management, that provides training services to companies. And last year at our firm, we started a mentorship program for energy professionals. So that's an initiative that we're working on together. Another initiative of Sara's was the Pakistan Steering Committee at AIPN, which is the Association of International Petroleum Negotiators. Hi, Sara. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. How are you? Well, hi, Sarah. Um, it's good to be with you today. Even though it's virtually, I'm very well. Actually, I'm right now just gone through a Texas freeze and it seems like it's out of, a, you know, those horror movies, but it happened. Texas froze and we were without electricity and uh, water for two days. And that just shows how, how desperate the world is for energy security. Yeah, I heard about that. So is your internet and electricity all completely back now? Yes, yes. Everything's back to normal. Thank you for asking. Good. Uh, I thought one one thing else I should add about our intro is that because we have the same first name and we both have worked in Islamabad, in the oil and gas sector, I feel like every now and then I get people that come up to me and they think I'm you. And I have to stop them in the middle of their story and be like, no, wait, I think you're talking about the other Sarah, that's Sarah Malik <laughs> or Sarah Wan, because to make things more confusing, you changed your name. So um, that happens every now and then. But yeah, thanks for being here. Um, since this is a brand new podcast, I wanted to set the tone for you a little bit. Uh, obviously, there are Many things that we could be talking about as far as a legal profession is concerned, your career, the energy sector. But today I wanted to focus on your oil and gas law career in Pakistan. And this is because uh, many young lawyers and law students are interested in this practice area. So I think that our conversation would be very useful for many of our listeners. So let's just uh, jump right into it and start with your LLM degree that you have in energy law and policy. Uh, can you tell us why you chose to do that particular program? And can you just generally take us through the curriculum as well? So I'm going to be cliche um, and quote Robert Frost in saying that I took the road less traveled. But to be honest, um, I was making a decision between two specializations, media law and energy law. Uh, media law, because under the Musharraf era, we saw a lot of um, private channels opening up, but we also witnessed censorship. I mean, it's true that the media should exercise a check over the government, but then who keeps a check on the journalists? And then the interest in regulation over telecommunication, information technology, broadcasting, but that can be a long discussion topic on its own. So circling back to your question, why LLM in energy law and policy? Well, that too is a story because it started as a debate when I was in O-levels. The debate was on nationalizing industries and I was speaking for the topic. And the theme sparked an interest because the other side quoted how OGDCL and PTCL are a burden to the economy. And my quick response was then, without 
you know, knowing too much about the energy industry was, what fuel do you have in your car to which the reply was CNG? And I distinctly remember saying, then you should be thanking the Hydrocarbon Development Institute of Pakistan, HDIP for short, uh, because it's a national petroleum R&D uh, wing of the Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Resources. I mean, we can talk about lens on again on how CNG is a blessing and a curse at the same time, but nonetheless, the discussion sparked an interest and made me realize what truly drives a nation is the aspect of energy. And to learn more, I landed at none other than the Center of Energy, Petroleum and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee. Can you also tell us about the curriculum or what part of the energy sector did your LLM focus on? So my LLM was uh, my LLM was termed energy law and policy, and I've always been a big picture person. So it was everything and any everything, right? So it was an interlink between law, policy, and management in energy. Um, my first year, I took international arbitration, international project finance, and the most interesting subject was international developments in energy policy because that that re- is really what helped me. Um, understand the differences in regimes employed by oil and gas um, nations. For example, is it a concession-based system like it is in Pakistan's onshore industry, or is it a production sharing, which we have in our offshore, a service contract model like we have in Kuwait or Ecuador. And based on that, the ownership and the mineral resources is different and the management is different. So because it was an LLM in energy law and policy, it was it covered everything, right? I, I went with downstream energy law and policy. I had courses like national water law and policy. I even wrote my paper on the Indus Water Treaty, which was great. Um, And I had a chance to audit a lot of courses like modern practices, practicing in petroleum licensing. So it was a bit of everything, but dealing with energy at the end of the day. Okay, so then after coming back from your LLM, you first worked as an in-house counsel at an exploration and production company based in Islamabad. Now, this is where I would say we both kind of began our oil and gas law career together because I remember I joined the same company just a couple of months before you. I had switched from like a litigation firm to now working, you know, in-house at the company. So for me, I would say that while I was uh familiar with some of the legal skills because i got to apply some of the legal skills that i had learned previously like whether it was like drafting or writing an opinion um uh, but as far as the enp sector was concerned that was that was brand new so like everything that you've just mentioned that you learned in your llm um i didn't know what a concession agreement was or uh what are hydrocarbons or like really basic stuff i learned like on the job, first couple of weeks or or first couple of months. But in your case, I guess what I want to ask is how much of what you studied in your LLM did you get to see and apply, you know, at this company, like at your first job? Well, again, will it be a cliche to response, um, to have a response and say all of it? Because to make most of my LLM, what I also did was I attended four professional development courses that are always, you know, offered by universities. And I was lucky enough to attend uh, a course that was named Due Diligence um, Issues in the Oil and Gas in, in Oil and Gas Sector. And I remember when you and I joined this company, we were literally thrown to this, you know, den of wolves with this huge project. And we had to do due diligence of this asset, which is around, you know, it was about, worth about what, 750 billion US dollars. 
Um, and it was looking at, you know, everything and anything, what the major, you know, risks that could involve in case there is an asset transfer. Um, and it's not just the asset itself, right? It's associated things. Okay, so you're having this asset. Oh, have they defaulted on anything? Do you need a parent company guarantee? Do you need another bank guarantee? Is there gas being sold? Is there gas not being sold? So the associated elements of it, and I learned that through my LLM. As I said, the LLM in energy law and policy as opposed to because they have a lot of LLMs and uh, those LLMs are specialized. You can do it on water law. You can do it in oil and gas very specifically. But now with the energy transitioning happening, I think the courses have also changed. But nonetheless, at that time, even courses like negotiating and documenting petroleum industry transactions helped me. The natural gas contracts helped me. The modern practicing in petroleum licensing helped me because I could take little bits and chunks of information from all those courses and apply it as the need was. That is that is why I think it is good to go for a specialized field as opposed to a general field. But then again, it, it really does depend on what sector you're really interested in. Yeah, so you, I mean, you mentioned uh, like one of the transactions that we did, like, so this transactional yeah. work, uh, how would you describe your other sort of day-to-day -day legal work um, that you did at this company? So it was, it, it ranged, right? So you supported the corporate governance in their compliance. For example, have you um, given the rent on the fee on the license or the lease that you have has it been paid as in accordance to the rules um if you are drafting an agreement are they aligned to an agreement that is already in place and then you know you prepare documents for meetings like operational committee meetings and technical commission meetings that is always part of the jobs because you're having your joint venture partners come in either you know as per your uh, petroleum concession agreement either three months or four months, I forget. But yeah, that's that's the normal day-to-day -day work that you're doing. So every day is a new day. Yeah, let's also talk a little bit about the environment of the in-house legal department. So, I mean, obviously we didn't have a legal manager, which I really liked uh, because again, coming from, again, a firm where I took most of my instructions from a senior lawyer, you know, from a partner, um, I, I liked getting the instructions directly from the executive. It, for me, it was sort of like practice to then how you would, you know, uh, work if you were practicing independently, getting work from clients. So I liked that, you know, being in charge of my own work and obviously it came with a lot of responsibility as well. But for you, what, you know, I'm curious to know, what's your opinion? What are the pros and cons of having or not having a, a legal manager? So to echo what you just said, right, um, not having a law manager, I, I also like that because it was more of a learning by doing experience. But the added pressure is always there because the added pressure is get it right because there's nobody there to correct your mistakes. And if you fall, you fall. Um, and most of the work we did was, of course, you, you have your guide, you know, you've got your guidance documents, you've got your applicable policy, you've got your rules, you've got the concession agreement, which is the Bible of oil and gas. But, and the rest of it, you've got your team for support as well. It's not that it's just you. 
So you you do go go to people who have that experience and you and you look at those case studies, but not having a manager it was it was I mean I I I to be honest I like that I like that freedom of learning and being under that pressure of getting it right. Yeah, I I, w- I would agree with that as well. Um, but after this so after this first company. You worked there, I think, for almost two years. Correct me if I'm wrong, but then you moved on to a another ENP company. I don't know if you're allowed to mention the jurisdiction, but it was a foreign ENP company, right? And you worked there for about three years. Uh, how would you describe that legal department? How different were your day-to-day legal tasks over there? So my first company was 2010 to 2012, and OMV. I mean, I, no issues with naming names here. OMV was 2012 onwards. Um, it's an Austrian integrated energy company. Um, it's present in upstream, downstream, and the petchem sector. I was in the upstream part of the business, and the legal department had a dotted line to Vienna, and the rest of the matters being taken care of. You know, rest, they were taken care of in house with the help of external counsel. But all in all, it was a really good experience because. A, the exposure was great. And then there was a lot of collaboration with international teams. So much so that our colleague, who was based in Yemen, and who's also a really good friend, helped me think through creating a legal compliance system for Pakistan that I built single-handedly for OMB Pakistan. And the last I learned from my ex-colleagues, it's still in place. Um, as you mentioned, my old name, Sara Awan, um, it's still on it. And um, I'm, I'm happy that they still used it. Bef- I don't know if it's still in place once it's been sold over to, uh, you know, UEP, but I mean, that was all me. So all, I mean, as I said, as I moved to an integrated energy company, which is multinational, the exposure becomes more. And I really, that really tested the, you know, your strategy thinking, um, and, and looking at things from a different perspective. Because in OMB, I wasn't just working for OMB Pakistan. I had the chance to go to OMB Austria and work on international assets and you know, looking at whether an en- entry into another company, uh, sorry, a country made sense and, and you know, um, how to de-risk your assets and all of that. So it was, it, it was a really great experience that you know, helped me where I am help me get to where I am now. Yeah. And can you also think of, uh, I mean, yeah, you mentioned the experience and just the change in perspective. Uh, any yeah. any other skills or just knowledge uh, that you think you were able to add to your profile? Uh, anything else that, that stands out? Patience. Sorry, I just spoke for you. Yeah. It's patience. To be honest, it was, yeah, because I think it comes with age. Sometimes... And sometimes you learn it early. And sometimes when you begin your career, you're just impatient. Like, I just I just want it now. I want it now. But OMV taught me a little bit about it. I mean, I've learned to be a little more patient now. But it really... And I had great mentors there, right? I mean, there were two or three people. One of them was a general manager who, who used to give me little pieces of advice, almost if not every day. Um, you know, sometimes whenever I used to interact with them, and it 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 changed it changed perspective for the better. 
for example i remember i was just really stressing out about this uh, parent company guarantee and he told me to take a day he's like it's it's fine just take a day take a deep breath come in look at it with fresh eyes and it will help and then just that amount of confidence of somebody in you right that okay you will get it that's it that that was the message behind that tone that you will eventually get it was something that i think at that time i i just really wanted to break down and cry but i was i was just like okay let me let me look at it again and when i did i understood what it wanted from me what the work demanded from me and it was fine yeah no i i totally understand what you're saying because it's not just the the legal skills or just the you know uh, industry specific like in this case energy specific knowledge you need other other skills as well and these experiences like what you're talking about i think yeah. they help you be a better lawyer and better professional mm-hmm. so after um you know omv you then worked for a donor organization in their energy policy program mm-hmm. as a senior legal specialist would that be the correct way to describe it yeah it's the us agency for international development so usaid yep uh, can you recall what the program was and was it also related to the upstream sector and what was your role in in that so as far as i know um the usaid has a lot of components to it but the energy policy program uh was very specific in providing technical assistance and expertise across the board to the government of pakistan um in advancing its agenda to increase energy sectors financial viability you know power generation decrease in transmission network losses access to energy security i i think the program that i was involved with was more on access to energy security and thus um you know securing and if 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 not an overall but um impacting the regulatory side of it so the support was targeted to look at policies in let me just rephrase that so the basic support was looking at policies in a way that would help oil and gas production and local production basically because as we know we import and we don't i mean no nation wants to import everybody wants to have a secure energy security have um not secure energy security but have a secure source of energy and be energy de- independent not dependent so it was more towards how to you know decouple how to get a reform done that re- reduces the regulatory burden and increases efficiency so who like who are the stakeholders in this or like who were you working with were you working with other lawyers or were you working with companies like who did you have to interact with to do your job So we were a team of a very diverse background. We had an ex-director general petroleum concession with us. We had a person who used to work with the National Oil Company. We had a person who was a, I I believe a PhD in energy law and sustainability and I was also um with another lawyer uh like your background. So we were a diverse team but we were primarily geared towards the director general of petroleum concession who was the regulator in the oil and gas industry. um so our work was related to the ministry of petroleum and natural resources and anything to do with that sector um we did meet uh, sorry we did meet with other companies other oil and gas companies and for example i'll give you um 
uh, one of the works that we did. When we were engaged, we were able to get supplemental agreements executed. And supplemental agreements basically were when every any and every policy that comes, um, the petroleum policy that comes into place, it has this clause in it which says uh, companies can and you know if they want to shift onto certain petroleum pricing under the new policy, if they meet a certain criteria. Now, since the policies had been coming, no, no, no such supplemental agreement has been signed. So this was one of the push from the USAID to, you know, get up production, actually, you know, get up local production rather, and to get companies to invest more into the assets that they have rather than, you know, not having them economic and leaving them stranded. So one of the push from USAID was to get those supplemental agreements signed. And that's exactly what we did for the first time. All companies that had applied for, you know, maybe better pricing under 2007 or 2009 petroleum policies, those got signed. Okay, you also, you just mentioned the uh, Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Resources. So that's also where you worked uh, for about a year, right? Before going to the US? Yeah. Yeah, so for our listeners... Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about the role of the ministry, uh, about the ministry? And then you did just mention Director General Petroleum Concession. So if you can also, you know, explain a little bit what the ministry does and what the Director General Petroleum Concession does in the oil and gas sector. So very roughly, the Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Resources has policies and puts policies in place. The Director General Petroleum Concessions implements those policies and basically administers it. So if you have, for example, a policy in place and with that you have a rule and with that you have an agreement, that agreement um, so that it, you are on track and you are you know, going by all the rules, that is going to be administered by the Director General Petroleum Concession. But if you have a grievance against the state that, oh, my, you know, petroleum price is not being paid and this is this is not happening as per law, that is when the Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Resources, which has been renamed to Ministry of Energy, by the way, that comes into play. Um, and yes, I, I, from my first company to OMV, to USA, to Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Resources until now, um, I don't know how blasphemous that would sound, but in the experience that I've had, the most enjoyable has been the Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Resources because you honestly didn't know what tomorrow would look like and everything was due two hours before. It's not that we were slow as general perception of the government is, but everything has a priority and needs to be done. So I, it was it was great working, with, working at the ministry. It was, and it was great because it was so much of subject matter that it was, as I said, that one thing I enjoyed my first company was learning by doing, and that's exactly what I was quoted back into um, with the Ministry of Petroleum, because if the subject matter was not covered under the PCA or the PSA or the lease or the license or, you know, and the rules had no no say in it and, and there was no mention of it in the policy, you could either, I mean, you could either send it to the Ministry of Law to adjudicate on it, or as I used to do, I used to look at other jurisdictions. So it was, you know, again, your research skills came in handy, which you learn, which I kind of learned from LLM, 
and you said, okay, so Norway is doing this. Okay, Australia is doing this. Uh, Ecuador is doing this. That's interesting. Um, what about other companies that might be looking at it in a different way? So you had, you had A, you, you've got your, of course, you've got the ministry officials who are really knowledgeable, but then you also have access to extra network, right? You've got all these oil and gas companies that are willing to work with you to find a solution if it's not already there. And if it's a gray, gray, gray matter, it's not covered. And, you know, if there's, is, if there's something not uniformly defined in the concession or the rules or something. So, yeah. So your job as a legal advisor, just to describe it, is it more of handling contentious issues with other companies, as you mentioned, uh, or was it more of an advisory role or policy making or, or, or would you describe it in any other way? So it was everything because when I was there, I was even advising uh, Pakistan LNG Limited. I was um, seconded to them. And it, it, all in all, when you do work with the ministry, it's everything. So even if it is a non-contentious matter, you could be on that. It could be a mundane issue as non-rental payments. It could be a really, really contentious issue in which you're just like, oh my God, I can't be just making you know, anything up. It has to be perfect. It has to be on point, your T's crossed, your I's dotted. So it's everything. That's That, that was the beauty of being an advisor. And I did work on, on, on certain policies. I remember there was an issue on seepage. Certain uh, leases were, you know, this. I think the hydrocarbon seal broke and, and there was a gas being seeped on, onto the surface. And how do you clear that? Who does it? Um, there is no clear guidelines, right, under your EPA. So then who steps in? Whose jurisdiction is it? And then I even remember working with the World Bank on the 18th Amendment, um, on the ownership and control of issues. So it was, as I said, it's it's everything. And you just have to be willing to be open to these ideas, right? Because as long as you're open to these ideas, you, you go where the work takes you. And it's exciting work. Yeah, did you, did you also have to work with like other regulators or other government institutions? I mean, you mentioned the Ministry of Law and Justice, but like SECP or FBR, are, are you also interacting with other regulators and institutions? So I didn't, sorry, yeah, but I didn't per se, um, but other colleagues of mine did. But I mean, so if answering your question, does that happen? It absolutely happens. You can you can talk to Bhakta, you, you can, you know, write references to even Ministry of Defense, because, you know, at certain times, if, if a company wants an extra asset, it has to be cleared, it has to be cleared in a certain way. Um, there has to be a no objection certificate from the provinces. So you do have that level of interaction. Yes, you do. But with regards to FPR and other, other areas, I didn't, but my other colleagues did. So my final question, Sarah, would be, what advice would you give to law graduates that have studied energy law like yourself or young lawyers that are, you know, they may not have studied it, but they are looking to, you know, find work in the upstream sector. Uh, any advice that you have for them? 
So jobs vary, right? And let me start with this. It's not about oil and gas only anymore. Um, there's this new term, which is energy security within the frame of energy transition right now. And thinking about resources that you have and how to exploit them sustainably uh, while pursuing the two degree Paris agreement promise. So look at what is what the world is doing. Look at where everybody is heading, everybody and 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 create a space for yourself. And and it's it's not just words, right? You have a lot of avenues, as you had you know, you had said at the beginning of the podcast. Um there is the Association of Petroleum Negotiators. You've got Women in Energy. You've got Society of Petroleum Engineers, to name a few, where you can go and you can network and you can find more information about what the job market is out there like and what's happening. And there are so many now. I think the good thing about the coronavirus was everybody was just forced to um, dump information on you that there's so many webinars out there to to tell you and guide you what's happening with solar, with wind, with hydrogen. Um, and there's green, blue, and gray hydrogen out there. So what's happening with that? And, you know, be it upstream and what sector in the upstream? Like, do you do you want to be within oil and gas? Or do you think it's going to be solar? Do you think it's wind? Is it going to be, you know, for the long term, is it going to be LNG? So, and... And plus also, oil and gas companies are also not going to be oil and gas companies from now on. I mean, um, a lot of people made fun of BP when it rebranded itself from British Petroleum to Beyond Petroleum, and now Total changed its name to Total Energies. Um, and the new name is designed to anchor the group's transformation um, into the broad energy company and its underlying ambition to get to net zero by 2050. So it's Energy is everything. It's about cl finding climate solutions. It's about capturing carbon. So there's a lot happening in this sector. Um, and there, there is something for everybody. I, I think that's, that's really great advice. Uh, before I let you go, Sarah, for anyone that's listening that wants to get in touch with you, can you share any web links or any social media, whatever is the best way to reach out to you? Or if you don't want people to reach out to you, you know, that's fine too. And if you think there are any energy related forums, you did mention a few, but if you think there are other forums that our listeners should follow, please feel free to share that information as well. No, absolutely. So the first uh, um, thing is how to get in touch with me. Well, as you said, I am a partner with you at, at Energy Resource Management. Um, my email is on the website www.erm.com.pk and it's a very simple email partner at erm.com.pk. Um, that's the first way to get to me. Um, the other is I am on LinkedIn and you can get my um, details from the ERM website again. Um, so there's Women in Energy and then there's Society of Petroleum Engineers. There's also this uh, forum based out of uh, Abu Dhabi called IRENA, I-R-E-N-A. That's really good for renewables. I have, I have you know, learned a lot from that as well. Um, and of course, our own um, ERM mentorship program, because what that program does is it allows you to connect with an energy sector professional and have a one-to-one -one career oriented discussion with that person. Now I've had um, a mentor and I have become a mentor myself 
Um, and that has helped me navigate the risks and challenges of professional life because you get to see your career and get guidance on that from a different lens. So I would strongly recommend joining any network that you feel comfortable with, um, finding a place and of your own, and then having one or maybe, you know, a, a couple of people that you can talk to about your career. And, and when I say talk to about your career, I don't mean just friends. I mean a professional from that industry who's had that experience because they've gone through what you may be going through and they may be able to guide you better. So um, I, as, as I would tell the listeners, just, just um, have a look at that mentorship program, see if it's for you, if, if you're in the energy sector, if not, look for other networking opportunities within your sector. Perfect. Uh, thanks for sharing that information, Sarah, and for taking the time out for this. I hope to have you on again soon. And until then, take care. Bye. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to be on. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone else for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Bar at Law podcast and be sure to share this episode with fellow lawyers or law students in your network.